From 11FS, I'm Jason Bates, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you banks get taken by surprise by last-minute PPI claims, Jack Ma, China's richest man, steps down from Alibaba, and N26 launch in Switzerland, but don't support Swiss francs. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 357 of Fintech Insider. 357 already, hmm? Uh, today, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Simon Taylor. How are you doing? Really well. Getting over the jet lag, getting over being out for a couple of weeks. That was so, so hard, being on honeymoon for two weeks. Happy to be back. Congratulations. Have we officially congratulated you? I, and um, I think this is the official podcast congratulations, so I'll take it. Yay. Nice. <laughs> Um, so now it'll be into joint accounts and all of that, that yeah, stuff. All of that. Trying, yeah, that's all going to end up on Pulse before you know it. There'll be lots <laughs> of joint account opening going on and all that kind of goodness. We have a great one for you there, Simon. Yeah, well, uh, you know, with, with, with everything happening with Brexit, 11FS is looking at where it needs to go next. So you never know. Cool. I can I, vouch for Amsterdam. <laughs> there you go. So as you may have noticed, we're not alone. Joined by some awesome guests. Ali Nicknam, CEO of Bunk, is already pitching Bunk. <laughs> like we, We're only two minutes into the... Can you uh, me? Can you me? It's awesome. <laughs> uh, Kirsty Grant, Chief Investment Officer of Cedars. Hey, Kirsty. Hello. Thank you very much for having me again. Very happy for you to be back. Are you going to be pitching things to us as well? Absolutely. It is Europe's leading equity crowdfunding platform. <laughs> <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> nice. I think last time I came, I, I lost my voice, actually. So I, <laughs> I'm just pleased to have one this time. Excellent. And making his new show debut, uh, Jonas... Berg Larson, <laughs> am I murdering that? Uh, very close, I'd say. So say it for me. Boo. Yeah, I can't say that. No. J- Jonas Boo Larson. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds wrong. Uh, co-founder and yeah. CEO of Pento. Hello. Hello. Quickly, what, do pe- what does Pento do? So I- I'm actually allowed to pitch here. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you've got 30 Great. seconds. This oh, is like oh, 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 the oh, elevator. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, Pento is an attempt to bring payroll software to this century. Okay. Um, so we build payroll software for companies to automate their whole payroll process uh, from A to C. Um, and eventually we'll also move into building better payroll experiences for employees. Nice. Um, so that's what we do. We have... Okay, let, let's not go too okay. far. That's it. Look, we're, we're good. That's it. We're good. That's it. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Great to have you all. Okay, let's get started. So, first up, bank surprise by PPI deadline surge. So, the entire banking sector has significantly underestimated the level of PPI claims it would receive around the 29th of August deadline for historic claims. Uh, for those unclear or outside the UK, uh, we did some pretty dodgy stuff a few years ago. Uh, PPI was a form of insurance intended to help people maintain loan repayments if they fell on hard times. So it's payment protection insurance. Um, it was aggressively marketed by banks uh, in the 1990s and 2000 to help boost profitability. Who knew? Uh, and in, but a 2011 court case ended the practice and opened the door for a wave of compensation claims from consumers and also a, a ridiculous number of annoying radio ads mm-hmm. advertising organisations that would help you get that claim. 
So in the last week, RBS, CYBG, the Co-op Bank, Barclays and Lloyds have all been forced to take additional charges. HSBC and Santander are the only major banks yet to announce additional PPI costs. And Barclays have become the largest bank to warn that a surge in PPI claims will cost it billions more than expected. They'll have to set aside between £1.2 and £1.6 billion in extra cash to cover claims and this missold insurance. So Ali, do you know about the PPI scandal? Well, it reminds me of something similar in the Netherlands, actually. Um, I think we were a bit ahead of you there, Mm. um, where um, people would sell life insurance and all kinds of other dare I say, crap, Mm -hmm. you know, when you uh, got your mortgage and then they would offer the the mortgage advisor a huge kickback for him to sell all this stuff you didn't really need. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe, you know, if the regulators speak to each other more often, um, we can prevent the next thing because probably in the Netherlands it has been invented already. But (laughs) but isn't that the... um, that a necessity in in retail banking, like it's a difficult money uh, area to make business in, as as you'll know in bunk. So yeah. surely it's about selling a variety of products that can lead to all kinds of um, you know negative uh, prosperities. Well, if you ask me, the major problem we have in banking is that the natural course of things is not allowed to take its place. So. Um, the incumbents are very much being protected by rules and regulations that make it near impossible for new entrants, such as bank, not only to enter the market, but also to do things in a fundamental different way. And this causes us to stick literally in the previous century when it comes to, uh, you know, business models and the way banks earn money. Uh, And so we get this these incidents over and over and again where banks are, you know, kept alive, uh, they're not allowed to go bankrupt like any other company would be. They're tried to force into a certain paradigm and then obviously being commercial entities, they try to make as much profit as possible by, you know, maybe looking at the boundaries of what is allowed, foregoing any ethical uh, uh, I don't know that, that everybody in a bank, Ali, is, is trying to be unethical. I, I suspect a lot of these things started out as a good idea for someone somewhere and probably made sense for the first customer it was sold for. No, um, I agree. But, but then you get this slippery slope of incentives whereby Precisely. it becomes really profitable. Oh, wait, we made a lot of money from that thing we upsold. Well, maybe if we incentivize our people to sell more of that, we'll make more profit next year. So you get this sort of domino effect where there's not one evil sort of fat cat villain somewhere that I think is often played out but it's this this small step by step no, I, by step. I fully thing. agree, Simon. So I know a lot of bankers, and not many of them are evil. I know a couple <laughs> of evil ones, you know. So, but you have them in any industry, right? The problem, my problem uh, uh, with this, is not the bankers, and it's not individual persons. It's the, it's system. the system as a whole that forces things into one direction. I mean, how many of these incidents? should we have before we think maybe we should change something fundamentally. And so what would you change? I would let banking and the financial sector uh, play its course more along the lines like mobile phones, like water suppliers uh, and other utilities where there are very clear rules on what is allowed and what is not allowed. But apart from that, 
um, commercial companies are uh, allowed to act in a commercial way, and if they make the wrong decisions, they are also allowed to roll over and die. Okay. Yeah. So Jonas, I mean, you're you're running a a, a services based business, uh, something that does payroll. It's obviously something that you can charge for. Uh, I think in traditional banking, we've seen people make money from net interest margin and fees and balances, and now there's this a new set of uh, players coming along that are providing value-added services that mean that whether it's ad-supported or subscription-based or freemium-premium, that there are other ways of earning revenue. It's, it, what's your business model? Our business model uh, is a very classic like SaaS business model. So we charge uh, the company um, uh, an amount per, per employee per month. Okay. Uh, so it's the company that's paying. And so it's completely free for employees to receive their salary. We don't try to sell them insurance on their salaries <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, yeah, very straightforward uh, kind of software sell to, an, to a company. Uh, and what happens lower in the stack? Do you have any kind of like financial license or are you relying on other players? We're relying on other players for now at least. Um, so we, we, we try not to be too... Uh, Trying to try to keep things very simple um, and try to keep our focus on building the software and the right product. Um, but eventually, we might move into um, building out other like financial products on top of payroll, mm-hmm. um, which might you know uh, need us to be regulated in some way. Okay, because that fascinates me the the fact that actually you do something that is financial services related and you're building on someone else who has. APIs and a license and can be connected, you know, it suddenly creates a different platform. I guess you see a variety of platforms, Kirsty, and with Cedars and new people coming along. Do you see a variety of business models as well? Or are there a certain set that you, you recognize? Uh, no, we see a, a variety of different business models. So uh, certainly, you know, we've raised for a bunch of businesses that are sort of in the challenger bank space. Um, and now we're kind of branching into uh, all sorts of variations and elements of that whether it be uh you know dozens that have done the sort of through the credit card model and now this sort of savings account mm. type uh type approach to um to sort of challenging the old model um and uh equally uh i guess just general financial management type products ways to i guess essentially giving the consumer more power over where they're what they're doing with their money do you see any trends uh <laughs> In that particular space, um, I mean, I think beyond that, I mean, the main trend I think we're seeing really is that putting that power into the consumer, um, opening up for them. It's the transparency element. It's, you know, riding off the back of this, I guess, distrust that's built up in the old financial institutions um, and anything that now is about giving the end consumer uh, visibility, transparency and, and power to make their own investment decisions always flies well with our investors. And so from a bunk perspective, Ali, um, do you see yourself making money in the, that traditional banking space, you know, net interest margin, maturity transformation, lending? Is it in the services, a subscription thing, like, or, or affiliate fees for, think, for a marketplace? Um, How does it stack up? Yeah, so I think one of the change, uh, changes that we made with bunk, one of the things that is fundamentally different is that uh, we said from day one, even before we started, that we wanted to have our income based on subscription fees. This service model is a very old model and it is very effective to getting 
users and customers that are actually happy with your product. And because we pride ourselves into having a product that people love to use, mm -hmm. for us this felt very natural. We're not interested in doing the interest, rest, uh, game, interest spread game. Mm -hmm. I think traditional incumbent banks are very well equipped to do that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just that they're already having you know, that piece of the market, let them have it. I want to have the piece of the market where people care about having a great product. It's interesting for me that though, I think that model is yet to be proven. And we're seeing a lot of the challenges that have been around for several years now start to pivot to interest bearing products. Um, and you, I think what you were saying earlier is, well, that's because of the regulation that sits around it. It's not really allowing us. I'd love to get underneath that a, a little bit more because um, I look at like an Oak North, for instance, who have you know kind of come at it as a challenger that's just very, very good at lending. So I, I hear what you're saying, that lending itself isn't particularly bad. But maybe there's something in the fact that this marketplace model or this other revenue lines or this other business models hasn't been proven. Do you think that is true? And do you think it, it, it's a matter of time until it is proven? Or is there something else going on? I think, uh, well, we have... Uh, put our trust and belief in this model ever since we started. So mm -hmm. we didn't pivot into it. It has been our thing since mm -hmm. day one. Uh, where do you stand with customer numbers and sort of growth at the moment? Yeah, so the customer numbers thing is the one number we never disclose okay. because the thing we focus on is to having a product that people love to use. So what we do disclose is like the, uh, our balance total and stuff like that that in indicate actual usage. I, I believe we have a sh sheet online somewhere where you can check out all the latest numbers. But we're not so much into vanity metrics. Sure. Um, but going back to, to your question, um, we have put our belief in the system because it allows us to create a product that people really love to use. And I can see from our increase in revenue growth. Uh, that this will work out for us sooner or later. And I think that revenue question is a big one. Uh, just to, to sort of tie this one up a little bit, it's what um, 50 billion has been paid out in total. This is a massive amount taken out of the UK banking industry. And it seems to be cut, 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 and, and always seems to be a surprise every single time. And yet, you know, this is a fallout from you know, post-financial crisis. Um, there's still the bad media, the adverse media that sort of comes along with this. Um, and kind of moving away from that got fee into, as Kirsty was saying, that transparent, trustworthy thing seems to be the macro trend here, maybe. Hmm. And the trust thing comes up in our second story. See that? That was almost like an uh, artful link. Um, I, I guess you don't actually point out it's an artful link if it's an artful link, but never yeah, I was mind. I say smooth, Jay. Thanks. Uh, so, second story. Big US sustainable funds fail to support ESG shareholder proposals. You can tell that's an FT headline, right? Yeah. So, voting records reveal that U.S. fund managers that have promoted their credentials into tackling sustainability issues have actually done very little to support environmental and social shareholder proposals. During the 2019 shareholder voting season, funds labelled as sustainable frequently sided with the company's management against shareholder proposals on issues ranging from political spending to diversity disclosures, according to the U.S. SEC. The voting data raises 
raise new questions about whether social and environmentally conscious investors' expectations are being met as they pour billions of dollars into ESG funds. Yeah, it's interesting. ESG, if you're not familiar, environmental, sustainable and governance. This is a measure of uh, how um, kind of uh, environmentally friendly uh, is my uh, investment? How sustainable is it? Am I creating lots of plastic? Am I creating lots of CO2? Um, And the governance from a diversity and inclusion, uh, am I uh, making things like uh, modern slavery worse in my supply chain? Have I got transparency in my supply chain? Lots of things that make a lot of sense um, on on the surface of it. But actually, once you get into the world of big finance, they're actually really hard to enforce and get the data on. Like, how do I know that that thing is, in fact, sustainably sourced? How do I know that that thing is true? And when I'm investing, there's a consumer demand, right? What's my threshold requirement for that? Yeah. But I think the red herring here in a little bit, though, is that uh, what we're talking about here are shareholder proposals. And I think the threshold in the US is only that you hold stock worth about, I think it's like two grand for a year. So what we're talking about is, you know, know, the AGM, the classic kind of activist shareholder coming along, putting forward a bunch of different proposals, not to say that they don't have some merit to them yeah. um, and many of them might do but I think it would be fairly common to avoid, to sort of vote with management here so I think there is a little bit of yeah. clickbaitiness in the title. Uh, I'm with you I, I felt this was a sort of manufactured story yeah. because how many shareholder proposals really get you know mm-hmm. valued anyway or, yeah. or voted through as you want to support the CEO and, the, and what's going on but I do think there's the, a broader theme about ESG about who's governing that who make sure that these things work. Because, I mean, you must see in Cedars a lot of um, uh, interest in things that are actually benefit society and the environment beyond just trying absolutely. to promise some bigger return. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're really seeing our investors wanting to uh, back businesses that have that sort of ethos um, at their heart. Um, but what Cedars is, is a self-directed investment platform. So as an individual, you are looking at that business opportunity and deciding if you agree with the business model, you back the team, um, and you agree with the kind of principles behind the business. What we're talking about here is a lot of, you know, ETFs, essentially, and the trying to dovetail in a, a consciousness into what is passive investing, I think, is very difficult. There isn't a, until we have an index on ESG, um, and we have a sort of, there's a objective standard to say this is this is the rate at which I want I want my companies to to meet mm-hmm. how, how else how do you do that how do you have a a passive fund that does, that tries to qualify on that basis. I know FTSE Russell are doing a lot of work in trying to create an index into uh, ESG, but the, the challenge with that is everybody has a different vision of what ESG means. It's This stuff is really, really hard. Um, and also data disclosure is really, really hard and making that make sense for a consumer. So like on the surface, knowing that my pension fund is being good for the planet is something that I can imagine most consumers want. But actually define good for the planet and define knowing... So it gets really, really tricky once you get underneath the surface of this stuff. Absolutely. As, as there's, there's, too, there's so much subjectivity in it, and you're trying to match two different, I guess, approaches to investment. But it's interesting, um, as a broader trend, it feels to me like ethical is the new luxury. Like, ethical is uh, moving from fast fashion to sustainable fashion, um, fast goods to sustainable goods. Uh, the car that uh, all of the, the younger tech people want is the, is the Tesla, not the gas guzzler. And actually, that macro trend on the consumer level is creating a wave of consumer demand that I can see why this clickbait headline makes sense. Because if you're a wealth manager right now, you want to go sell your ESG credentials because that's whatever 
every, all the consumers want to hear. But are you really actually doing it is, is a really hard question to answer. I guess it's the new, like, I'm a tech company. Yeah. Hey, look how sustainable. Hey, everybody, look how sustainable I am. Exactly. You have to be a tech company now. (laughs) Is this something you see a lot of in uh, in the Netherlands on the startup scene as well? Is there this push towards, because there's kind of ethics with a small e, you know, we do, you know, we're a, uh, a responsible employer, we do inclusion and diversity, and you know we're a, we're a good corporate citizen. And then there's ethics, you know, or the ecology piece with a big E, where we're looking at you know the climate change and I don't know we work that where we're, where where we are at the moment have a thing about not using chemicals to pollute the environment in their cleaning products now. So there's obviously this push. I mean, do you see that kind of thing? Um, well, yes, of course, and for quite a while now. Uh, I think the people in Netherlands are generally very ecologically aware. Um, I don't believe that this is a new case of ethics, Simon, if I'm quite honest. I think people have always behaved yeah. ethically. I just think that um, in this day and age, like 50 years ago, it was really important to have a car and a TV and, you know, be able to have a refrigerator and fresh food, or 60 years ago, no matter, right? Today, we are more aware that if we continue at this pace and on this foot, we are literally killing the planet and therewith ourselves. And so it is very logical that we, when we live in a day and age where we no longer have to fear for our food supply, where we no longer have to fear for our basic human needs, you know, the Muslim pyramid, we start caring about other problems. And I do think that is a good thing because these other problems are kind of huge. I don't know if you see saw the NASA movie on like the polar ice mm. caps melting. I mean, if that doesn't wake you up, mm-hmm. I don't know what will. And so I, I really applaud and I'm very happy with everyone who's concerned about these things. But I guess it, it, it goes against, and I agree with you, by the way, but I think it goes against the established system of the psychopathic corporation that delivers shareholder value defined as the share price. You know, I don't it agree. Almost sets I don't agree. A, um, I don't agree. Okay. I think if you are not sustainable today, people will find out. And there's a huge burden on media to, to uncover this uh, and, and, make, and create a transparency. And people will vote with their wallet, which is, you know, the entire essence of capitalism, yeah. right? Yeah. And which is what we are seeing. So I think the system is doing its work. Yeah. And I'm very happy for that. Oh, I am as well. I think the trend towards shareholder value being redefined and that new metrics need to come along so that, you know, the big ETFs and the passive funds understand that shareholders want more than just a short-term quarter one, you know, next quarter return, yeah. but that you actually have to have these credentials as well. When when a big, you know, crisis <laughs> really affects the share price of companies, yeah. they, it's the incentive that makes them change, I Precisely. guess. Precisely. I think, you know, it's, it's not as if uh, companies are now thinking on other things than shareholder value. It is that there will be no shareholder value unless you pay attention to these things. I recall an incident with Uber many years ago where, uh, well, a negative story came out. And just because of that one story, I think we can safely say that Lyft exists today, mm-hmm. which is one of the very good examples on if people, it's not 
a moral compass keeping them straight. It is the shareholder value keeping them straight because of the consumers voting with their wallets. And I wonder if the consumers are voting with their wallets in different ways because they're empowered to do so in a new way. Or maybe there's an opportunity to do so. There's a really good study by the CFA Institute that suggests that uh, around about 40% of all money in capital markets is through, I believe, pension funds, and about 20% is direct retail. So 60% of money uh, in in sort of uh, financial markets, especially around equities and securities, is owned by you and me. Therefore, if you could activate that cash through ESG and and other uh, things that we care about, how do you connect that day-to-day life and my day-to-day activity with how my pension fund, which is, you know, in most people's cases, is not an insignificant amount of money, how would you activate that and change that, which is why I think you're starting to, to see these shifts. Interesting point. Well, someone who um, who could definitely affect the planet is Jack Ma, who's just stepped down from his $460 billion Alibaba empire after 20 years. So Jack Ma, in case you've been living under a stone, is uh, China's richest man. He's stepping down as the chairman of the Alibaba group that he founded 20 years ago. Ma, who's worth almost $40 billion himself, is known for his love of extravagant celebrations and his farewell party is taking place in an 80,000-seat stadium. Ma's successor is Alibaba CEO Daniel Zhang. So Jonas, as a CEO, something to look forward to, eh? Like you, uh, 20 years' time, retire, you fill a stadium. Definitely. I am, after reading the stories here, I I realised I know nothing about Jack Ma, first of all, and know nothing about being a very uh, excited CEO. I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of like really exciting things came out of that story. One of the things I noted uh, was that uh, they founded the company with seven, 17 people. I, I realized today if you were going to meet with a VC and like tell them that your co-founding team is like 17 people, uh-huh, yeah. then uh, they look very weirdly at you. So uh, yeah, I think well, well done, definitely, on a lot of Thanks. Yeah. You, you have to go and look at the uh, leaving party where uh, Jack Ma uh, sings, uh, You Raise Me Up. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is well worth your time on the internet. Wow. I mean, Alibaba is an amazingly impressive um, organisation. Do you think we'll see that kind of thing happen in the West? Do you think you will see, you know, Alipay and Alibaba really transition over? You're looking at me now, I, I am guess. looking at you. <laughs> right. Um, I frankly don't know. I was in China, actually, a couple of weeks ago for the first time in my life, and this was a very, very interesting experience for me. Um, Nobody there uses cards anymore. It's all Alipay and WePay. They just skipped the whole card thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, you know, I do believe that the payment industry in Europe is more efficient. Um, so I think we will, just by the sheer volume of Chinese tourists, um, we will see some kind of integration with Alipay and WePay. Um, I don't see MasterCard being replaced anytime soon mm-hmm. or Visa. I think the other thing that interests me on this story is that, you know, he's um, he's not that old. Is he 55? Um, and stepping down from a ridiculous empire, I would never imagine Mark Zuckerberg stepping back from, you know, Facebook. Mm-hmm. 
you know, we've got a few founders in the room. What do you think the motivation is from, from stepping back from this kind of thing? Well, I did so actually myself. Okay. Uh, TransIP, one of my other companies, uh-huh. is now the third uh, biggest domain name and web hosting provider in the world. Right. Uh, I stepped down about 10 years ago uh-huh. because I felt that I didn't want to be, you know, that emperor on the throne kind of thing. And I saw a lot of great people around me and I felt it was their turn to show, uh, show off what they could. And they showed me because, you know, <laughs> they've done great. And possibly the closest example might be a Bill Gates who did step back and create the Gates Foundation. And actually there's a point in your life where you're thinking more about planet legacy and than sort of company legacy. And maybe he's, he's reached that point. And, and actually the legacy of Alibaba is phenomenal. I mean, they do say you do your first startup for money, your second for legacy. You know, is that, is that what's happened with Bunk? Is definitely, this the, um, definitely. The... I think um, the founding reason of Bunk is the financial crisis and the inability of uh, um, of the system to correct itself because nothing really fundamentally changed after the financial crisis mm-hmm. and therefore we introduced amongst others this other business model mm-hmm. right and we're sticking to it mm-hmm. to prove to everyone that <laughs> different solutions exist in this sector because if the financial sector goes through a meltdown like it almost did 10 years ago we're all effed up yeah. Majorly, I, right? I, and we can't let that happen. I was, I was just going to say that in uh, Jack Ma's sort of farewell speech, there was a, a long piece, quite moving actually, about succession and uh, sort of stepping down, letting and his, creating a legacy and making sure there was a team to kind of carry it through, um, which I, th- I found very. Uh, I mean, who knows the real story, but I found it very authentic. It, it read correctly, I guess, and it read like legitimate reasons. Um, and it's always interesting, I think, when there's these sort of, uh, you know, cult personality type figures at the heads of these uh, startups that then sort of go on to become these these leaders. You know, there's this fear whenever they step down, mm. will it be the same company? But this is, you know, the machinations of Alibaba must be enormous now. Like, they, I can't imagine it's one person making any real impact. It's it's that whole team. And from a fintech lens, Ant Financial is a conglomerate in its own right. And if, if you want to look at sort of future business models, uh, I mean, yes, China is sort of the Galapagos of fintech in that the, the one-party state can change rules around things that are successful in a way that perhaps other uh, nation-states might find harder. However, um, the things that Alibaba do with data in terms of having a financial services platform having a point of sale network mm. they're, they're the card rails and their eBay and Amazon and their banking and their wealth and their SME lending and then the data they have in that ecosystem is phenomenal as a, as a platform play we haven't seen that elsewhere but the business models they're able to come up with because they can see that data is really something that we can all learn a lot from and I think is is phenomenal like if if I was to be talking to somebody who's doing a fintech course like what should you your um, thesis beyond start at Alibaba and work your way back. It would be would be my guidance. It, it fascinates me these um, uh, you know CEO stories and and what drives people. I mean, how long ago was Pento founded? What what led to that? What what are your motivations, Jonas? Uh, founded two and a half years ago. Uh, I've never been doing anything else than starting since I graduated. So uh-huh. I've been starting two other companies in the past. Um, so never really had a real job. But that's a, it, I mean, that's a hard life. Um, it's also a very exciting up. life, though. But but yeah, it is somewhat hard at some uh-huh. times, I guess. Yeah. And so why start companies rather than work for someone else? 
Um, I think that's the point. Uh, like, I, I really enjoy being able to do whatever I like want to do and, and feel is right. Um, and uh, it's not necessarily that I don't think I could work for someone else, depending obviously on who that would be, uh, mm. whether that is someone I would, uh, you know, look up to and, and actually feel I could uh, learn something from. Um, but yeah, fundamentally, it's like, um, making sure I can, do, I, I am the only limitation for what I, what I would like to, to do in my life. Yeah. I mean, we talk to lots of clients, big banks who are looking at starting new things and that whole thing around, you know, designing organizations around talent so that people can have autonomy, can work with great people, can deliver work that leaves a legacy, even if they don't get the financial return seems to be a power enough motivator in order to, you know, to bring people in. And with that, we'll be back very shortly. Let's take a quick break while we hear from our sponsors. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Cybos, the world's premier financial services event, is landing in London's XL on the 23rd to the 26th of September. More than 8,000 decision makers and experts from across the globe will gather to shape the future of finance and the opportunities for fintechs will be bigger than ever. Specially priced fintech tickets are available. Don't miss out. Book today at cybos.com. And welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. Last week on the new show, David mentioned that we had some changes to our social profiles for at 11FS and at Fintech Insider. Well, since then, we've changed it again. If you head over to the at 11FS on Twitter, you'll see we've got something different as our profile image and cover photo. 11 years, what's that? Hmm. Well, we've popped an animation out last week that gives some strong hints about what happens. Yes, this is one of those teaser things where I'm not going to explain and we're going to keep this going for at least another week or so. Um, But speaking of 11 years, uh, here's here's a pop quiz. What happened 11 years ago on Sunday, the 15th of September? Anyone? 11FS was founded? Unfortunately not, only three years old. The Lehman Brothers crash. Yes, the Lehman Brothers crash. Oh. Marking the start of the worst economic crisis our generation's ever seen. But that story's been told, and that's not the story we're telling. We're going to tell about something about what happened after that. So from the people who built a fintech ecosystem out of the ashes of the financial crisis, the many changes in regulation, the influx of talent, and all the moving parts that sparked the rise of UK fintech. If you want to be the first to take a peek at what we've made, subscribe to our social channels, find 11FS on any social network you use, and uh, we'll tell you more next week. All right, let's get on with the show. So next up, 
Stripe introduces Stripe Corporate Card and activates payout in 45 countries. The card is Visa. It'll be open to businesses that are incorporated in the US, although they can operate elsewhere. The credit card product will follow a similar model to that of Stripe Capital. As with the lending product, there's a single bank issuing the credit uh, and the card, and the same bank that's providing the cash behind Stripe Capital. If you're applying and get approved, you can within minutes download a virtual card, your Apple wallet, as you await the physical card to arrive in the post. So what do we think about Stripe corporate card? Is this the uh, inexorable uh, next product in a global Stripe empire? Yeah. I think your point earlier about the uh, collection of data being uh, crucial to Alibaba's success, I think that's what we're seeing here, right? Yeah. This, this is close to you, Jonas. Uh, you know, payroll, corporate cards, are they coming for you? I, I, well, we'll see. Um, <laughs> I think I'm really impressed by the pace at which they are like launching products. Uh, I think it's only like, well, a week or two since they launched Stripe Capital. And then I think about a month or two, before that, they launched like Stripe issuing, which was like an, a simple API for other startups to build products where they can issue credit cards or like cards on their own. Um, so really impressed by the pace of how they continue. Uh, such a huge company uh, by now uh, still continue to launch so many products. I think the only uh, concern that I would come up with uh, is that the messaging for Stripe is, is is starting to be a bit blurry. Like they have so many different products now. All thanks um, to all people. Yeah, and uh, I think there are there are both good examples and bad examples of that. I mean, uh, Amazon is a good example of you know being able to uh, have like or Alibaba for that uh, for that matter, like having a range of different products and services under the same name. Uh, but then you have Google on the other side who chose the other path where they have you know Alphabet and then they have. YouTube uh, mm-hmm. and you know other types of brands, um, and I think that's to me at least when I look at Stripe from the outside now, it's, it seems like it's starting to be a bit messy uh, to I, me at least. I, I think I, I have no mistakes about it. I have a massive crush on Stripe. I think they're phenomenal, um, and in, it's not just the pace at which they execute; it's the quality. Um, right. If you uh, talk to any engineer that you trust about the quality of the APIs that are produced, they always sing, yeah, it's great. sing totally. sonnets totally. about. As a coder at the table here, it's great. It, right. <laughs> and, and that's consistent. Yeah. Um, the, the second thing is, if you talk to product people and they've gotten into the products, they they might sort of say it's a bit messy, but generally they go the product by itself. For Ooh, sure. Yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah. Um, and every, I love Stripe Atlas, for instance, this uh, all-in-one package to start a business. They, they are doing things consistently. And I remember um, talking to a bank in sort of 2011, looking at Stripe, going, oh, that'll never really take off. And that was a consistent theme. And I think consistently people look at who their competitors are today, not who their competitors might be tomorrow. And that's a big strategic mistake, because if you're trying to, especially for the competitive sort, if you get your juices going by competing, you and you start to compete with only what's in front of you, you'll miss the real competitors that are coming. And Stripe are that classic example of somebody, you know, they're a $20 billion business, and I only I think they've not even got going yet. But, but I guess to pay the contrarian here, I mean, a Stripe corporate card is not that difficult to do in today's day and age. You know, we've got challenger banks popping up all over the place with prepaid cards, well-established APIs and infrastructure. Is this just not a, a kind of copycat thing with a card you know, connected to someone else's license, connected to their payment rails that they use in other countries anyway? Is it really a, a, a big play? 
Um, well, I think it's a smart play. If it turns out to be a big play, time will tell. <laughs> I think that the, the main thing here is that there are a lot of competition out there, especially on the corporate card side. There mm. are like really good startups in, in Europe, like Plio, Spendesk, there are a lot of, and then there's like the big uh, uh, Brex in, in the US who just recently opened their own cafe in, in SF, which uh, created a lot of exciting uh conversations on, on Twitter. Um, but I think the main thing here is that uh, uh, Stripe will now be able to offer uh, their customers uh, both data on what uh, on the cost side and also on the revenue side at the same time, which is super unique because then you have like, you know, the input and the output of the business in one place. And that's probably never been possible before. And I think before. to me that says there's demand for the products. If Stripe are doing just a Me Too product, then there's demand for it because corporate cards suck. Mm -hmm. um, but also that data point is is really, really interesting. Um, so there's some of the info here about users are expected to pay their balance in full each month. So for now, there's no interest rate or fee to use the card. However, Stripe is making money from interchange. Uh, any underwriting is based on Stripe data. And that's interesting. So Stripe are starting to see more and more data about their customers. Going back to that point about what Alibaba has done so well, they see more of their customer. One of the reasons I think the Square share price has done particularly well in the past two, three years, this is not investment advice, do your own research, um, is that they pivoted away from transaction fees into data about the transaction and helping merchants. Right. They got away from those click fee models into how can I use all of the data I have on you to solve your business challenges? And that this is an example more of that. Hmm. Another expansion story. Next up, N26 launches in Switzerland, but without Swiss franc support. So N26 is the um, is officially live in Switzerland, but their accounts only support euro accounts, not Swiss francs, uh, which is the actual currency of Switzerland. Uh, likewise, the accounts have a German IBAN, not a Swiss one. The German native digital bank launched its services in Switzerland on September the 3rd, offering Swiss customers a choice of two memberships, a free standard bank account and a free business bank account. So what do we think? It's interesting this sort of uh, growth across borders with something that really doesn't fit that market seemingly. Is this a good move? I'm, I'm trying to understand what they actually launched really because it's the same offering I guess they have in Germany. It's a German account yes. number with euros so all, and it's a digital bank, so presumably they've not set up shop in <laughs> Switzerland. So is it just that they've said to Swiss nationals... Well, you can now open an account. <laughs> they did a yeah. PR campaign. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess, Ali, with Bunk, you've stuck with the Netherlands? No, we're live in eight countries, actually. Um, so next to the Netherlands, we're live in Germany, uh, Belgium, France, Spain, Italy, Austria and Ireland. Forgive me. Yes, we're bigger than you think. Yeah. We're out there, man. We're out there. <laughs> and in so, so many ways. Yeah. <laughs> and so how has sort of localization worked for you or what have yeah. you found? Um, we do a lot of effort in making sure our users are happy with our product. And um, localization is for us split in two uh, things. One is the stuff we can do as a tech company that loves to build, you know, stuff that excites you. Mm. Um to make sure that local payment habits are supported, local, you know, customs are, are supported. On the other hand, there is the limitation of the regulation, unfortunately, that is not harmonized across Europe yet. That, for instance, just as you said, doesn't allow us to supply local IBANs, which mm. is 
such a silly thing. Mm -hmm. It's such a silly thing. If anybody is out there, <laughs> please fix it. It's in the benefit of all consumers in Europe. It's such a silly thing. But um, so, and that that can cause problems with payroll and ID and all kinds it of things. Can't so this it? is very interesting. When SEPA was introduced a couple of years ago, it mandated by law that all IBANs are created equal. Mm -hmm. But some uh, IBANs are more equal than others, <laughs> precisely <laughs> because nobody's actually upholding that law, and so all violations of it go unpunished. So today, if you have a German IBAN, chances are you can't use it everywhere in the Netherlands or you can't use it everywhere in France. And this, of course, inhibits innovation and helps the incumbents. It's one of the things I was talking about earlier. Um, and I think that is a shame. Now, there are two ways of solving it. One is by changing law and regulation and starting to uphold that law, which is very slow, and it is very expensive and it is very inefficient because you have to set up a team that goes around all these countries and checks. Or the other is the tech solution, which is, hey, we're going to allow you to, uh, to, to uh, create whatever IBAN you want as long as it is an IBAN and you are a regulated uh, entity. You can go, go out there and have fun. Sure. And, that, and if we would uh, go for that route, we could... Uh, start distributing other IBANs overnight. Be fun. Um, it's interesting that there was a bit of a social pushback on this one. Um, on the announcement thread, um, there was a lot of people citing the pointlessness of the offering. And uh, I think there's something interesting about when you go into a new market, you want it to be received well. And sometimes missing some of these things can can actually really dampen your optics. And N26 have been pretty slick when they've gone into new markets. Generally, they're, they're welcomed. Generally, their marketing is pretty good. Um, this one's interesting that that's what comes up about it when you first start Googling it. Um, bit, of a, bit of a narrative shift but um you know more challenger banks good um in in my uh, humble opinion so um let's see if they can turn this one around i think this reminds me a lot about the scooter space so mm -hmm. you know a lot of different competitors wanting to be first in, yes. in one market mm -hmm. and i remember probably like six eight months ago when when a lot of big european cities didn't have scooters and some of the bigger players like lime for example in copenhagen were like just launching scooters and and you know there were people being very angry <laughs> to your mm, point mm. um and and they ended up pulling all the scooters back to two weeks later because uh the the city told them to um but they got what they came for they got the the uh, majority of the people to download the app mm. so that when everyone was allowed to launch the scooters they all had lime apps on their phones yeah. which i would assume would be part of the thing here is getting as many people to download the N26 app. Um, yeah, we're seeing a, a sort of a, a couple of different models because Monzo is obviously focused very much on the UK, very, you know, pushed there for their 3 million or so customers. N26 went very sort of uh, early adopter in lots of countries at the same time. You know, so it, it's interesting as to whether that land grab you know, uh, in one country to to grow some kind of base or dominance, how that fits against a let's get actually out everywhere or, or even some other challenger banks who I've heard will go and hire a country manager just to try and grow a waiting list in order to then launch the, you know, the thing at some point in the future. That sort of digital land grab is yeah. is interesting as a strategy. 
Yeah, I mean, it takes a certain amount of confidence, I think, to try and bring banking to the Swiss. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> they um, uh, certainly, I mean, I wonder if that's partly being sort of Europe, Europe continent-based. I think, that, you know, UK companies can tend to be, you know, they've got a big enough market here, they can tend to be very focused on that and treat Europe as a whole, you know, something they'll leap into one day. Mm. Um, and I wonder if, you know, being, being uh, in, you know, based in Berlin, whether they've always had that strategy of, you know, we're going to have to cover more markets. And I would have thought that, that seeing as that that's where they're based, they might have had a bit more sensitivity about that localization in each market they roll out into. Hmm, interesting. Well, another Challenger Bank story, and one close to my heart. Uh, Zinger Bank gains its banking license, rolling out its first accounts. I'm a permanent board advisor for Zinger, so I'm super happy with this one. Congratulations. Uh, it's, it's not my effort that's done this. It's a, uh, a very hardworking team down in Australia. So Zinger is uh, one of the few digital-only bank challenges um, to Australia's big four banks. It's rolled out its first accounts after winning a full banking license from the country's Prudential Regulation Authority. It joins fellow challengers Vault Bank and 86400 in gaining regulatory approval uh, for its digital-only banking proposition. So we've got another area of three challengers who are all now fighting it out with, you know, with different propositions. Uh, what do we think about, about this? I love it. I love it. I think the more challenger banks, the better. And I think together we can, because I don't see these other guys like N26 or Revolut or Monza, to whom we're often compared to as competitors. I see them as peers. And I think what we're trying to do is create a new market and a new awareness where people understand that there's something to choose from today. You don't just have to stick with HSBC or Barclays or ING in the Netherlands or Sparkasse in, in Germany just because you have been there uh, for the past 20 years. There's something to choose from and there's something to gain by choosing. So I, uh, I'm very excited about this. So they were initially launched in February 2018 as an app uh, by a good friend of mine, Eric, uh, and a prepaid travel card. Zinger has 28,000 prospects on a waiting list for its first transactional banking accounts. And it plans an immediate launch of a range of savings accounts followed by lending products in the first quarter of 2020. Uh, CEO Eric Wilson contends that zero legacy systems and state-of-the-art technology give it a massive advantage over traditional and digital banks. And they've raised $45 million to capital to date. Uh, it struck me, sorry, Kirsty, it struck me as interesting that they are using SAP cloud banking as their technology backbone um, when you've seen lots of disparate um, kind of approaches from different organizations. But actually, you can use the latest vendor version of something and call it zero legacy with credibility because actually there isn't the history of it plumbed into thousands and thousands of systems. So it's an interesting approach because we have seen uh, different ways of moving from the prepaid card into the, the banking system. Do you buy one off the shelf or do you build your own? And, and it's interesting to see the different models play out. Uh, I can't talk about this sort of this case specifically, but in general, I think regulators across the world have different views as to what kind of risks you should take with what kind of technologies. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't surprise me if, um, uh, if regulators have some kind of impact in the, on those kinds of decisions. Interesting. It's an interesting space to watch in, in Australia. <laughs> One interesting for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I wonder yeah, why. Not, not to surprise you all, I'm not really? actually English. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My dulcet tones, yeah. yeah. Gave it away. Um, 
But uh, I, look, I've not uh, actually lived in Australia for over ten years now. So the you know the fintech space is very much new. I'm not an expert in it, but I you know I, I do have an eye on it. I'm you know interested in the press. And one of the interesting things that I've been reading a bit about the challenges the challenger banks there is around how. Uh, you know, the UK challenger banks were somewhat uh, benefited by the financial crisis and the fact that, uh, A, there was this distrust in the banks after it, and B, the incumbents were sort of distracted and focused on other problems mm. at the time that the challenger banks were kind of coming through and offering, you know, these great uh, sort of feature, digital features. Now, the Australian market doesn't have that, and it seems like the incumbent banks in, in Australia have been much quicker to release digital products, mm. um, some of them rather sort of savvily under offsh- offshoot brands rather than under the home brand, making it feel kind of young and exciting mm. and, and fresh. Um, do you feel like the, the challenges there will have the same success as they've had here or do you think that they will face, mm. they're going to be squashed out by the incumbents quicker? I think if it's a question of technology and the sort of the app, the digital stuff, then it's easy to get squashed. I think the thing that we see quite often, you know, with 11FS clients is that actually the best digital banks are about a new operating model and those things are much more difficult to change. So whether you're, you know, NAB or the big banks... It's about culture, right? And about... Yeah. And that produces all the other stuff. I mean, technology, you can literally copy-paste it in under a second um, um, if you if you have access to it. Uh, but it's mindset that is much more difficult to copy. Um, mm. uh, and, and, you know, to a point on that, established bankers tend to think about financial products and the distribution of those products, where someone from a tech background is really creating services. You know, they're creating Precisely. something that delivers something. Yeah. So that one sentence... You know, shows the difference of someone in a bank will say, "Great, we're going to do a new, new fintech current account." Someone in a you know in a, a startup is not going to say that they're looking for problems to solve that happen to wrap a current account somewhere in the precisely. infrastructure. Precisely. So, yeah. so I think that you know the the innovators' dilemma for banking: the wider big banks with all the money, all the customers, all the expertise, all of the brand. Why are they at risk? is because of this operating model issue, which isn't a technology thing. It's a incentivization, structure, process, silo, mental model, the way you treat staff, the way you recruit, all of that, I think, wrapped up, um, provides an opportunity for challenges that have a new, a new approach. Fully agree. Fully agree. And in fact, I think if the market would be slightly more fluid, if there would be something as simple as you being able to uh, transport your uh, account number to a new bank, the world would have been totally different today. I mean, you can move your phone number from one provider to the other. Why wouldn't you be able to do the same with your bank account? And I think, if again, if any regulator is listening, <laughs> if you can ch- change two things, one, allow IBANs for everyone, <laughs> two, allow people to transport their... Yes, yes. I mean, that's porting. a thing. And that will allow consumers to vote with their wallet, which we discussed before, and that will... Probably solve 99% of all the issues. Take that current account switch guarantee. Uh, I love it, Ali. You've moved from now pitching for customers to to um, to pushing regulatory change on a global scale in, in one podcast. Policy ideas. Wow. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> well, finally, a bank mistakenly put $120,000 into a couple's account, and they spent it. So a Pennsylvania couple is facing felony theft charges after their bank accidentally put $120,000 into their account and the couple spent it instead of 
contacting the bank. Both Tiffany and Robert Williams told investigators they knew the money didn't belong to them, according to an affidavit. Uh, and in an interview with law enforcement, there's a, there's a clue, uh, <laughs> Tiffany Williams said the money was spent on an SUV, a camper, two four-wheel trailers and a car trailer, amongst other things. So the bank error occurred on May 31st when a customer in Georgia made a deposit of $120,000 into BB&T Bank and the teller entered the wrong account number. Wow. Push payments for there, you. There's some like sweat, you, you know, sweat filled dreams where the teller realizes yeah. and the person depositing the uh, the cash is like, where's my money? Um, and Interesting AML case as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So what <laughs> do we about think about, finger error. about, you know, errors like this and the responsibility of end consumers? I mean, not to bring up Australia again, but we did this story way better a, like a year ago. Okay. There was a young, like a 24-year-old guy and his overdraft facility just suddenly had no limit on it. And he ended up withdrawing about over a million dollars. <laughs> Part of it went on to his mortgage and then he re- spent, apparently spent the rest on cocaine strippers and, 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 and fast cars cars or something ridiculous like that um, and he has since then he was originally put in jail for it um, taught himself to legally defend himself as a criminal lawyer and and won his appeal representing himself and he's now selling the movie right I was going to say he's now studying criminal law of course but like how many vehicles do they need an SUV a camper two four wheel drives and a car trailer it's I the mean, American like, dream Jason it, it must be. It doesn't sound very sustainable to me, though. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, but I think there's something to be said for, like, did these people not expect that the bank would see what they were doing? Like, oh, I've got free money from the bank. Like, surely there is no consequences to going and buying everything I ever wished for. This came from the money fairy, didn't it? Like, <laughs> well, I think that's what we all need. I think we should just end on, we just all need a money fairy. Here, here. So this wraps up this week's show. Thanks very much to all our guests. Where can people find out more about you? Ali? Well, go to the App Store, download Bunk, and try it for yourself. If you like it or not, it will help you make your life very, very easy. We put a lot of effort to it, so please enjoy it. Thank you. And that's B-U-N-Q. B-U-N-Q. It's point symmetrical. Oh. It's the same. I never realized that. Really? No. You're kidding me? No. Okay. No, no. (laughs) Uh, That's just me, though. Uh, Jonas? Yeah, um, Pento is at pento.io. Um, so if anyone out there is uh, killing themselves with spreadsheets every time they need to run payroll, um, we can definitely help. And uh, myself is at Twitter, Jonas, and then the weird last name. Buh. Yeah, but it's uh, B-O-E-G-H. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Kirsty. You can find Cedars at cedars.com. That's S-E-E-D-R-S. Unfortunately named at the point where it was cool to drop vowels. Then wow. <laughs> yeah, we're stuck with it. Uh, um, you can find me on LinkedIn um, and oh, I always forget my Twitter handle. I think it's Kirsty DG. Yeah. Oh, you obviously use this a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Twitter maestro here. I'm pretty sure last time I tweeted was the last time I was here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or Simon at 11FS.com if you want to talk to me about anything because you're weird or because that might be fun. Also see some wedding photos, I guess. Yeah, you just get Twitter. involved. Ask about the honeymoon. <laughs> and as for me, you can find me at Jason Bates pretty much everywhere. What do you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Periscope, just about everywhere for more content or just search for Fintech Insider. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>